You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Fox. So the same Welcome all to this week's Christian Humanist Podcast, the first of the spring 2018 semester. I'll be your host this week. My name is David Grubbs. I'm an assistant professor of English at Houston Baptist University and where else but Houston, Texas, which is astonishingly cold at the moment. Um, So, yeah, like most of the country. With me today is Nathan Gilmore, associate professor of English at Emanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. How are you today, sir? I am doing well. Uh, as I was telling you guys in pregame, today's the last day of drop ad here at Emanuel College, so I've been signing forms and watching my uh, roles wax and wane. It's a quite amusing time. <laughs> nice. So, sort of the sort of the 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 live. Do they love me? Do they love me not? Kind of thing. It's more of a how many hours will I gain or lose in grading that I'm either going to do or not going to do. That's right, and they've already made the decision whether the class is making or not. So what you want is everybody but two people to drop. <laughs> I've thought about handing out a fake syllabus on the first day, like that, maybe that W. H. Auden syllabus that makes the rounds on the internet every couple of years. It's fifty books. Yeah. Or yeah, the Kurt the one Vonnegut that... one. Or the uh, David Foster Wallace where he threatens to beat them up. <laughs> I don't remember that one. We yeah. we need to do an episode at some point in the future about unreal syllabi. The Apparently. odd one is real, though. That's the thing. Like, that is a uh, like, serious, serious syllabus. Oh. But well, I... the, the, fel- the fellow who's threatening to drop an airsats syllabus is michael farmer assistant professor of english at crown college in st bonifacius minnesota hello michael hi david (laughs) um before we get into our topic uh any housekeeping that we need to do at the beginning of the term i think things were a little little quiet over the holidays but some cool some stuff dropped and some cool stuff is in the wings yeah, we've had a uh, steady stream of Christian Humanist Profiles interviews, and that stream mm-hmm. will continue as we start the semester here. Uh, Jordan Poss interviewed Victor Davis Hansen. Uh, Coyle Neal had a couple interviews. One of them, I can't forget the gentleman's name, but talking about church music. Um, Keith Getty. Keith Getty, that's the one, yep. Uh, Sectarian Review finally released the uh, Spider-Man episode that Danny Anderson and I recorded in August, if I remember right. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, that they actually released uh, the Spider-Man episode after the Star Wars The Last Jedi episode. So uh, we like being achronic. Anything else going on on the network, guys? The Christian... Oh, Christian Feminist. Oh, God. Go ahead, Michael, because that was a real good episode. Yeah, they, they just did an episode on the Me Too movement and the Church Too movement. But you said it was good. Very cool. Well... If you are, a, if if Christian Humanist Podcast is 
the way that you've discovered our network, by all means, uh, check out uh, our what do, what do we call them? Our 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 our, our sibling shows, our, our our offspring shows. I mean, I'm not entirely certain what the relationship is, but there's many of us. We are legion, um, and they're all good for you. So check them out. Today, the topic, this comes from a, an article that was actually, uh, the link was posted by super listener Chen Boulay. Uh, it's an article from Christianity Today. He put it on our Facebook page. So again, dear listeners, if you want to get in contact with us, Facebook's a good way to do it. The article is from Christianity Today. The title is How Podcasting Hurts Preaching by Reed Mercer Shushart. Uh, I believe is how you pronounce that name. But before we engage with this article, Nathan, uh, we should probably know something about the writer. I didn't when I first read it, and so um, uh, was was wondering what the perspective was that was coming forward in here. Um, I sent you some links on uh, Dr. Shushart. Uh, so what is useful for us to know about him as we move forward? So I'll do the useful stuff and then the... Uh marginally related stuff that I found phenomenal. The useful stuff, uh, Dr. Shushart studied with uh, Neil Postman, uh, who you should know if you listen to this podcast. We mention him fairly frequently. Uh, he is a professor of media ecology, uh, which is one of those professor titles that I wish I could snatch for myself. <laughs> uh, it, it's right next to uh, Dr. Cornell West's title of professor of the practice of public philosophy. Um, I mean, if I could trade him job titles right now, I would, uh, nice. paychecks too, but that's another story. Uh, but, uh, Dr. Shushart is a student and a scholar of the ways in which media constitutes an ecosystem in which we dwell. So in other words, it's not individual, uh, productions of television, radio, internet, so on and so forth that he's interested in so much as the relationships into which these things fall. That's the useful kind of stuff. This is the kind of study that he does, and it's what's going to set the background for the essay that we're going to talk about. Uh, the part that uh, I have to admit I looked at and I said I want one, other than his job title. And it's kind of a toss-up which one <laughs> I want more. But uh, about two-thirds of the way down his uh, Wheaton.edu faculty page, there is this slider graphic called Style. Uh, and, uh, you know, basically it looks like Wheaton faculty, although not all Wheaton faculty have these, I don't know why you wouldn't use this if you had it, can adjust this sliding scale between educational and entertaining, between strategic and tactical, between lecture style and interactive, between formal and relaxed. And I think my bio page at Emmanuel College doesn't have this graphic, and I want one. Uh, <laughs> wow. So... <laughs> That's amazing. Super, that I really that was is super I, cool. I, I have been geeking out on this ever since David sent the show notes, and uh, I, I've just been looking forward to talking about it. So, uh, David, I mean, you know, what did I miss once I uh, became fixated on the sliding scale Dungeons and Dragons faculty page? <laughs> and, he, and he's 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 lawful neutral, and yeah. Um, I thought that was interesting looking him up when when I looked him up and saw his. Uh, the, the media ecology, um, uh, th that, that topic, his association with Neil Postman, that was the point at which I went, ah, 
because if you just look at the the two lines of bio associated with the article, he's an associate professor of communication at Wheaton, and he has ten children. Which is, God is bless the, him. Yes. No. The world must be peopled. Um, so so good 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 on him. Um, but the, uh, that was all I knew. Was associate professor of communication, and that could mean. God, uh, any number of things, right? But um, the media ecology was um, that. That was that was the point where um, I, I felt the, the the key the key was found. Well, Michael, the first sentence of this article, "How Podcasting Hurts Preaching," goes like this: Up until what seems like just yesterday. Christians had to show up in church to hear the sermon on Sunday morning. I, maybe that felt like yesterday to Dr. Shushart, but I have a hard time remembering when I couldn't download the sermon. So how does this match your experience? And how much do you think a subjective impression of what's normal and what's new is shaping this article from the outset? I, I, I don't know um, about the second question. The, the first question, so you've been able to download sermons for, what, 10 years? Maybe a little longer than that? Depending before, on the church, yeah. Before that, I mean, my church when I was growing up had them available on cassette. Uh, of course, they've been broadcast over television since the 50s, at least. They were broadcast over the radio before that. And, and even before electronic electric technology sermons were written down and published so i mean we we have done an episode on sermons and i'm sure we talked about lancelot andrews whose sermons we have becomes because some fastidious parishioner took notes and published them so the idea that at any point in modern history since the invention of the printing press you had to show up in church to hear the sermon i i find that opening line to be a little bit of bad faith now, if what he means is there's something different about being able to easily download it as opposed to having to have a tape sent to you or pick up a, a tape or turn on the television, although I don't see how that's much different than downloading it, I agree that there there might be there might be reasons to be even more suspicious of podcasted sermons than these other forms. But to act like this is something new under the sun just seems like bad faith to me because it's not. It's it's a new variation on a very old thing. And, and I'm sure there were people who complained about every step of that technology. And I'm also sure that the fact that people complained about previous technologies doesn't mean that our current technology doesn't deserve to be complained about. Uh, so if I dug myself into a hole, I'm not sure where I'm going anymore. I mean, I would say that it even predates printing because there are circular homilies uh, that are produced, you know, for the sake of the less educated priests, you know, parish priests and so on and so forth, which obviously are going to come to you uh, through the spoken word, but I mean, are still not the products of the person delivering the words. So when you some... think of like the Phaedrus, maybe that was the first podcasted sermon. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. That really is. Nice. Nice. Yeah, thing you know, things that you were referencing, uh, Nathan, like um, the the Blickling homilies in Old English. Uh, there was a collection of homilies um, that was assembled uh, in the reign of Charlemagne, 
um, for for that purpose. Um, Alfred of Incham's Catholic homilies, um, one for every day of the church calendar, um, you know, uh, designed so that so that the, the the preacher didn't have to be especially erudite in order to come up with a a uh, a sermon appropriate to the time of year. Um, during Christmas, um, while I was while driving, uh, I, I was listening to uh, a collection of homilies from Leo the Great that's on LibriVox. Wait, how did they tape it? They had a, well, the, the, the text comes down to us and one of those LibriVox readers read it. So it was an audiobook. <sighs> Oh, right. But but I'm but I'm listening to Leo the Great. Right. It was it was actually pretty interesting listening to a whole series of his Advent and Christmas sermons, um, you know, stretching through the centuries. Um, yeah. And, well, and really, I mean, to go back to Michael's point, I mean, if you think of the Phaedrus as having an episode of a speech that is written down and then delivered later on by someone other than the orator. Uh, I mean, what you have with the New Testament, among other things, are texts from Paul so that the assemblies of the faithful where Saul of Tarsus is not geographically present uh, can still benefit from his thought uh, and from his teaching and from his authority. So, I mean, it, it, like you guys were saying, I mean, you know, we've kind of belabored the point, but to call the podcast you know an innovation in this absolute sense really kind of misses a lot of the history of the homily and and david i realize i'm kind of um you know piratizing the material that we're going to talk about here in a little <laughs> bit but uh the, the, they they blend into each other pretty naturally i think I, I i do think you have to consider the source i mean this is this is not an academic journal we're reading this out of it's christianity right. today which is the christian version of time magazine you got to have a uh, you got to have a catchy lead uh, in a right. magazine like that, and this is a catchy lead, and maybe it's not making most people as angry as it made us. Uh, but then most <laughs> most people haven't hosted a weekly yeah. podcast for ten years. Is it? Um, and I, I I think this is probably something that we're going to have to unpack as we go because I think it's uh, it's it's notes that he puts up later. Um, do you think this first sentence um, makes? makes more sense and and is less jarring if you treat it as um, it's only been recently that you were likely to be able to download the sermon of your church hmm unless you went to unless you went to the crystal cathedral or right or or bethlehem baptist or you know some other kind of big uh uh, what is it, John MacArthur's church in California, one of those big churches that has long had a uh, sort of sermon disseminating wing. Um, I mean, may, may, maybe uh, I, I, that that might make more sense that he's in, that he's uh, he's talking about it that way. But even then, tapes have been around an awful long time. Yeah, I don't remember ever being in church where they didn't tape the sermon. Right. Right, and I'm the eldest of our trio. I mean, that's a memory that goes back as far as I can remember being in church. Mm-hmm. When I remember, as a kid, listening to t- listening to tapes of speakers at my parents' church from before I was born. 
So, <laughs> yeah, it's been a while for a while. Um, as I was kind of poking around, um, looking at this, um, nineteen thirty is the year that both the Lutheran Hour originally aired. The um, its website calls it the world's oldest continually broadcast Christian radio program. Um, but also that nineteen thirty was the same hour that Fulton Sheen. Um, later Archbishop Fulton Sheen, now the Venerable Fulton Sheen, um, uh, broadcast his Catholic Hour on NBC Sunday Night Radio. Um, so uh, those sermons for a long time. And one of the very first Edison phonograph recordings, um, and you can, you can look at this link on YouTube and hear it, is Thomas Spurgeon um, reading the text of his father's last sermon um, for a for an Edison Bell record company recording so that you can hear kind of what Spurgeon would have sounded like. Um, and this is one of the very first recorded things we've got. Anyway, I found that interesting. Well, Nathan, I would like to poke a little bit more at this idea of what's new versus what's normal, um, but take it further back in history. Um, Schuhart... Uh, Shushart uh, appeals to the sermon's appointed time in Sunday worship and accuses podcasts of disrupting a liturgical norm that is venerable and uh, he never uh, overtly says it but seems to imply that this is an ancient apostolic biblical thing. Um, so in what ways does the sermon function in the history of Christianity, especially as it relates to the church and liturgy and so forth. Um, do you think a fuller history of the sermon is supporting his point of that uniqueness of the Sunday sermon? The first author I think of when I try to take on this question uh, is Pierre Hadot, who I mentioned in my paper at the uh, Culture, Criticism, and the Christian Mind Conference. I knew the name sounded familiar, but I couldn't place it. Yeah, he talks about uh, an exegetical tradition that actually predates Christianity uh, that goes back to really the Hellenistic period in philosophy. And what you have there is the diffusion of philosophy geographically as Alexander the Great and then later on uh, folks like, you know, Pompey Magnus and Julius Caesar expand the realm of, you know, Greek and then later on Roman culture the same teacher cannot be in any of these places. So the tradition emerges that at a meeting of a philosophical community, uh, they will read the text of one of the ancient masters, whether that be Plato or Aristotle or someone else. And then someone who is a local authority will basically interpret uh, what Plato hath said. Uh, and this is how we get, you know, texts like the Enneads of Plotinus, uh, you know, a lot of the later Stoic texts. It's a tradition that also gets picked up uh, in different streams, but certainly they're influencing each other in the synagogues of Judaism. Uh, again, the rabbi of a synagogue isn't necessarily a person with new authority. The New Testament makes some hay of this, uh, but instead someone who is interpreting an authoritative text. Well, when you see, you know, St. Paul interpreting texts with the Bereans, it seems to be more of a dialogical thing, whereas in the famous and amusing episode where he speaks so long that young Eutychus falls asleep and drops out of the window, 
uh, he seems to be giving a solo oratory. So there's a great deal of flexibility there in the very earliest days leading up to Christianity and then in the Christian era itself. Now, later on, uh, you get texts like St. Augustine's on Christian doctrine or De Doctrina Christiana, if you prefer that Latin, uh, that talk about a sermon as an oratorical event, something analogous to a speech that you would hear, you know, as an encomium or maybe a legislative speech. But the main thing that I want to emphasize here is that uh, the history of the sermon, first of all, is very, very flexible in form. And then beyond that, uh, you certainly have it paired with the Eucharist in early mentions of Eucharistic gatherings on the first day of the week. So certainly there were Sunday morning meet right. meetings in which you would hear oratory. But it seems like that there were other times when oratory would happen. And then in better documented times, like uh, Calvin's Geneva and places and times like that, uh, you know, 17th century North America, you have uh, environments where you have the public lectures in America or daily homilies in Geneva. So the idea that you hear the teaching of the apostles on Sunday is certainly ancient. The idea that you only hear it at that time uh, which is, you know, something that, you know, Shushart tries to massage into an argument about the scarcity of content. Uh, that's a lot shakier, I think. Um, David, I mean, you know, I, I kind of hit a couple of historical periods that I've been thinking about lately. Uh, are there other moments that you would want to point at? There are references even in um, some of the patristic sermon series that come down to us. Um, the, the, those homilies by Leo that I mentioned, um, also, uh, the, uh, I think it's Basil of Caesarea, the Hexameron, um, I believe the Hexameron also has them, but Leo certainly does, has references to, um, uh, come back, you know, come back tonight and I'll keep talking about this, come back tomorrow or, um, on Wednesday I'll finish this up. <laughs> um, there's distinct references in the homilies um, to the fact that not all of those homilies are being preached um, on the Lord's Day. And uh, I know that this was also true of Augustine. Um, I've, I've heard the same thing of Chrysostom. Um, but the idea that, that, that Christians, that certainly that Christians do meet once a week um, is has is kind of the historical Christian norm that they would meet only once a week um, actually seems historically more rare especially in in times and places where the church is is better established um, and safe frankly well they had mm -hmm. choir practice on Wednesday night right yeah, exactly, exactly. You've got to you've got to get another night for that, um, you know. And that's just completely leaving out, you know. Again, you know, as, as as a child, I went to a church where they had Sunday morning, Sunday evening, and Wednesday night, um, you know. And in each of those in each of those services, there was a there was a sermon. Um, in fact, you know, three different sermon series would be running um, in in the same in the same church. So what they do on Sunday morning, what they do on Sunday night, and what they do on Wednesday night. Um, so, uh, 
this this idea that the Sunday morning is is a unique, historically unique thing to be defended and not, uh, yeah, uh, that it seems an odd, an odd case to me. And listeners, the reason that we are belaboring this point, I kind of nodded to it earlier, but we need to make it explicit, is that one of Shushart's arguments is that part of the harm that podcasting does to homiletics is that it reduces its scarcity. Uh, So if the content of the sermon is constantly available, according to his argument, there is less incentive to join the congregation on a Sunday morning. Uh, Now, like I said, I mean, that is his argument. I think it's a little bit squirrely. What we're getting at here is that it's also not really linking up with what historically has happened in actual gatherings of the faithful. Yeah. Uh, Michael, let's, let's pursue that further because he's hammering hard on this point that the sermon should be unique and unrepeatable. Um, that if you missed the sermon, that was it, man, you should have been there. Um, what concerns are undergirding this emphasis, whether theological or economic or artistic or whatever, and might some of those be more sympathetic to your mind than others? The economic one is certainly the big one, the value scarcity uh, contrast we've been talking about. And I, I find that fairly distasteful. And I find the idea that, uh, it, you know, we should treat the sermon as this one-time thing that we punish people who don't come to church by saying, you don't get to hear the sermon. I, I don't think he says the word punish, but that is definitely the vibe I get here. Um, I found myself thinking of Walter Benjamin's essay, The Work of Art in the Age of Its Technological Reproducibility, where he talks about aura, that a work of art has this indescribable aura that comes from its authenticity, from its one-of-a-kindness, from its physical presence, and technology chips away at that aura. Now, Benjamin thinks that's a good thing, as I read that essay. He He's in favor of it, because, for example, where at one point I would have had to go to the symphony to listen to, uh, listen to a, a concerto. Now I can do so very easily from my own home, which means more people are able to hear this thing that was once the possession of a privileged few. Uh, and, and furthermore, I don't think Benjamin says this, but I can also listen multiple times to the concerto. I can I can work it out in a way I wouldn't have been able to if I'd only heard it once in that particular environment. Now, I don't know that that argument holds very well for a sermon, which was not the possession of the privileged few. It's always, as far as I know, been a relatively popular art form. Uh, so you don't want to, you, you, you can't make the argument that says, well, now now it's not just a 1% issue the way maybe going to the symphony was. But on the other hand, I, I wonder if we're overstating the aura of the sermon, whether whether it really needs to be this one-time unrepeatable thing, whether, in fact, it should be the center of the church service at all which is the vibe i get from this article yeah he certainly assumes that even if he doesn't directly state it i have to i have to say i'm sympathetic to the argument i i i don't disagree that we lose something when we when we hear a sermon over uh over a podcast instead of in person and i should say i don't listen to podcasted sermons um I don't know the way he makes this argument 
you, you, squirrely sounds right. There's 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 something off about the argument. He's he's putting too much pressure on the sermon, which I don't think was ever meant to have as much pressure as he's putting on it. It's not the center of the service. I don't know. Well, he says something. Um, I haven't. I can't count the the paragraphs, but it's the second page in when I printed it out. Um, he said that the sermon is not an interchangeable part that can be removed from the context of worship, removed from the context of worship, I think that's important, while still maintaining its power, authority, and its efficacy. Um, that, I thought, was interesting, and I really wish that he'd said some more about that, because he seems to... Yeah. He seems to be assuming that there's there's something about this moment in worship when the word is declared that is special and doesn't come through the MP3. <laughs> I, um, I wonder if he has a, a similar problem with broadcasting entire church services, because then I mean it loses some of its context. I mean, they're, they're, the embodiment is important; it matters. It's not we're we're not Gnostics, right? But it's it's more contextual than just a disembodied sermon is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you get to hear that great worship music. <laughs> is this the point where we need to talk about charisma and things like that? Uh, uh I, I, I'm not going to talk about that. <laughs> I was going to say, Michael, you're the you're the Bart guy here. You. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, it's true that Bart, um, that's the responsibility of the minister, right, is to preach the word. And, and I, I don't know enough Bart to know what he would think of the kind of disembodied quality of the, of the podcasted sermon. But the word is being preached. Right. I mean, in theory. I mean, there is something, um, I mean, and this is something historically that I think it, you'll, you'll hit in multiple um, Protestant thinkers. I don't, I don't know. I don't know what the corresponding thoughts might be in other kind of the other grand Christian traditions, but in, in Protestant thinking that there is a, um, some kind of special status allotted to the preaching of the word, that there is a, um, there is an authority here, a kind of special, and you'll sometimes hear it spoken of as, as an anointing. Um, even, even in uh, non-Pentecostal context, you'll speak of, of this kind of special anointing that accompanies the, the preaching of the word, um, especially in worship. Um, that, that, you know, you, you, you'll sometimes hear, I, I think, in Protestant circles, um, the sermon being spoken of as a kind of mediation of grace that maybe parallels um, the way the, Eur- the Eucharist is spoken of in uh catholic uh the catholic tradition um i I'm, I'm wondering if he's if he's assuming something like that 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 in, that a that a an airsatz sermon out of its context would be similar to looking at a photograph of the host do we know do we know what uh Shushart's christian tradition is i don't actually um, I'd be really interested. We know to he's know. not Catholic or Orthodox because he teaches at Wheaton. Um, yeah, I, I think that is very a very accurate description of the way Reformed Christians tend to see tend to see the church service. 
And I, I wonder, I, I, you know, I don't, like I said, I don't listen to sermons on the internet. I wonder what percentage of podcasted sermons belong to which Christian traditions. Is this something that's happening mostly from Reformed people who see it as the center of worship? Or is it happening mostly from other denominations that see it perhaps as subservient to the music? Hmm. Or, oh, to the, or to the communion? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. I hadn't thought about that possibility. I mean, I mean I, you I, mentioned the, the, the first two... Uh, radio programs are Lutheran and Catholic. Right. Neither I, I don't know about the Lutherans. The Catholics certainly the the sermon is not the center of that service. No, not by any means. Well I thought it was mm-hmm. interesting too that, you know, when he talks about this, I mean again his argument, you know, the the reason I call it squirrely is because of its progress. You know, it's not a linear argument by any means. He talks about that scarcity factor for a while, but then he tears off in a totally different direction and starts talking about how a sermon cannot compete with the other, you know, billion entertainment choices that you have on your smartphone. And again, that assumes so many things that I'm not sure are true. Uh, You know, the, the idea that, you know, That, church, that, you know, a whole lot of people, and I really don't know this. I mean, I know Michael doesn't listen to pod, podcasted sermons. I don't very often. But, uh, you know, I really don't talk to that many people who listen to podcast sermons instead of going to church. Usually right. the folks who I talk to who listen to podcast sermons do that in addition to going to their local place of yeah. worship. I mean, is that, has that been you guys' experience? That's my guess. I don't. I can't call it my experience. I, I know that there is a, and and this is this is something that that I've seen talked about, um, and in fact, I can I can cite an example, um, that that within certain uh, evangelical circles, that the sermon podcast has has created the sermon podcast junkie who doesn't necessarily use the podcast as a replacement for church, but gradually develops a but, but who develops a, a dissatisfaction with the preaching at, um, the individual that the, at the particular congregation they're associated with because of this other, you know, because of this other thing, it's like, you know, our local heirloom tomatoes are not good enough. I've got to get these exotic ones from elsewhere. Um, and so maybe there's some of this um, by local kind of uh, kind of sensibility here um, that that the podcast works against. Um, yeah, I, I could see that. I mean, if if such a person well, exists, I think, yeah. and I have no trouble believing that. Such I mean, a I, I've read exists. articles that talk about that. Um, I I actually went through a phase like that where I was like, yeah, my fav- my favorite podcast preachers are better in these discernible ways from the preaching that I'm hearing, and I actually had to sit back and say, you know, they aren't my pastor. <laughs> They're a really good preacher who is not my right. pastor, but I, I don't want to step on um, later conversation. But uh, the um, the Village Church, Matt Chandler's church, he's a, a Southern Baptist preacher in um, north of Dal- uh, north of Fort Worth. 
uh, if you if you ever listen to or watch any of the sermon videos or podcasts on their website, they all begin with him saying, this is not a substitute for you being part of a church. Go be part of a church. <laughs> and... Uh, yeah, that seems... That seems meat and right but the but the fact that that Mm -hmm. was deemed necessary seems to indicate that at least at least for somebody that might be an issue or that they're worried it will be i mean right and see that's interesting david because in my experience the people who talk the most about uh usually it's radio preachers in my circles but i go to old (laughs) churches uh (laughs) Uh, but they tend to be, those conversations tend to happen in adult Sunday school class. Interesting. So, I mean, I can say with some degree of confidence that those people are not replacing uh, Sunday morning worship with radio and podcast sermons because I see them the next hour in the worship service. Right. To, to return to the sermon junkie, I, I think celebrity might mm-hmm. be a problem with this too i mean if people are listening to podcasted sermons they're they are likely to be listening to famous preachers and especially if they're comparing their local workhorse pastor to to celebrity preachers there's something pernicious about that that has much less to do with disembodiment as it does with uh evangelical culture's general celebrity worship and i i think celebrity worship is helped by distance so in in that sense i'm kind of with shushart i i I mean i think that i think the the distance provided by the podcast can be a very dangerous thing i'm not sure for the reasons he says i think it's mendacious to claim as he does that podcasted sermons are a reason why fewer millennials go to church i i just i yeah that that one like i said i mean the people i've talked to who listen to podcast sermons tend to be north of 50 years old <laughs> well and the people i know who don't go to who are millennials who don't go to church ain't sitting at home listening to a right. podcast um, some of those people probably exist but you know if you're making a top 50 reasons why millennials are falling away from the church podcasted sermons is gonna be in the 40s at best yeah i that that would be my gut maybe he's got access to research we don't but that was that was then you should have cited that it. was my my gut <laughs> or at least referred to it. um when he's talking about the value and the scare that argument um we've talked about the history of it but the but the internal logic of that is that the media ecology discipline coming out because to me it sounds more like media economy but i don't know maybe those overlap i, I don't know media ecology yeah i mean you know if you think about the you know, work of Marshall McLuhan that gets inherited by Neil Postman. I mean, the kinds of things they're concerned with are, you know, the context in which a message reaches an audience, right? So, you know, television is going to differ from radio. Both of those are going to differ from books. And all three of those are going to differ from a, you know, a live oratory for a whole range of of different variables. So, I mean, I I think that definitely those lines of inquiry are, are operative here. I mean, for instance, when he spends a fair bit of time talking about the nonverbal mm-hmm. character of mm-hmm. the spoken word. Uh, that that sounds like something Neil Postman might take notice of. Um, you know, the scarcity of utterance 
even though, you know, we talked about how if that were true, it would be an ethically suspect reason. And historically, it's probably not true anyway, so we needn't worry about it. Um, that's not an extraordinarily well done, but it is the kind of inquiry that Postman would be interested in, as far mm-hmm. as I can tell. Yeah, I, I found his his argument about how much that gets left behind because of the absence of body language to be not not especially... Um, the quote that he has is uh, famed communications scholar Albert Moravian, something like that. Anyway, pointed out that more than half, 55% of a message comes through body language. Uh, maybe in conversation, but if you're talking about the homily, which historically has been manuscripted, um, and many preachers right. still do manuscript it, um, I, I, I would I would wonder whether that uh, that ratio of meaningful communication coming through body language versus coming through voice uh, would be uh, would be altered. Um, oration is not the same as conversation. Uh, well, and different kinds of oratory are different mm. too, right? I mean, something like a stump speech is relatively low on content. Really, what comes across in a stump speech is the persona of the politician podium pounding. Right. Uh, and, and certainly, or I mean the very reserved delivery style of certain other politicians, right. Uh, you know, part of what, uh, you know, gave George Herbert Walker Bush, his gravitas was the fact that he wasn't a pulpit pounder. Right. Um, so, I mean, in those kinds of oratory, I think that, you know, the nonverbal is a lot more important than it is in a sermon where, you know, I mean, certainly there are, I mean, we can all think of preachers who are, you know, jump up and down, hoot and holler kind of preachers. But I mean, a lot of preachers, I mean, if you put them on a scale of zero to James Brown and Blues Brothers, (laughs) would fall a lot closer to the flat delivery. Well, and and have been trained to do so, not necessarily by design, not not that they've been trained to, to not use voice inflection or gestures, but have been trained to make ag- explicit as much of the message as possible so as to prevent misunderstanding. Precisely. Um, if, 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 my, if my audience, you know, if I'm a preacher, which I'm not a preacher, but if I were a preacher, I would hope that them getting... 55% of my message did not depend on what I was doing with my arms or whatever. Um, I would try to do a better job with my, with my words. Well, you are the preacher, Nathan. You're the one who has experience with that. Uh, Shushart insists that preaching should be an embodied event with both preacher and listener bodily present in the ecclesiastical body of the congregation. I'm super sympathetic to that because I'm, I'm a very much a be in your local church, your local congregation. That is where the boots on the ground kingdom of God is. Um, as our resident preacher, what sorts of goods do you see coming from preaching in the body in those ways? Well, first of all, you know, almost all of my preaching um, I've done in small congregations. So fewer than 100 people, 
I know by name most of the people to whom I am speaking. Uh, so, I mean, in that context, there are certain things that I can do, you know, connections occur to me that didn't occur to me when I was at my desk, you know, rewriting the sermon for the fourth time. When I look out and I see Jane or Jeff or, you know, someone else out in the pews, right? And so there's an improvisational character to the way that I tend to preach that is a function of the fact that I am a small church preacher. Even in a larger hall, though, because I have done a few uh, what I would call sermons. For instance, I preached at Emmanuel College's uh, chapel back in October, to, you know, uh, w during the run-up to the uh, 500th anniversary of the 95 Theses. I didn't do a whole lot of individualized improvisation there. But I could, in some ways, uh, get a sense of where the room was. Uh, and this is going to sound, you know, very technical and very secular. Uh, and I'm not claiming that any of this is a, a, you know, any kind of supernatural intervention of the Holy Spirit or anything like that. I really am saying that as a public orator, there are certain things you do with a live audience that you cannot do uh, when you are speaking into a microphone at your desk. Now, if you add to that, which I would, uh, the possibility that where two or three are gathered, I am there in their midst. And yes, listeners, before you write in, I know that he's talking about, uh, you know, consulting with someone who has sinned against someone within the body about whether they need to be reprimanded, expelled, so on and so forth. But if you assume, let's go to a passage that actually does talk about it, that the gathered faithful are the body of Christ, a la Ephesians then there is something to be said about being in the same place. Now, I don't deny the possibility that that kind of togetherness can happen in mediated fashions. After all, as soon as magnetic amplifiers become part of the church experience, as they are in most churches I've been part of, even though they are small churches, you don't have simply human bodies and vibrating air. You also have electronic amplification. However, there is something to be said, again, for being in the bodily presence of those people to whom you are speaking. Um, and I would say that, you know, there's something just on a communication theory level to be said there. I'd say there's also something to be said spiritually there. And, you know, for that reason, you know, like you guys have been saying, you know, this part of Shushart's argument uh, does resonate with me. Now, as far as, you know, my own uh, sermons being podcast, uh, because I've been a small church preacher, every church that I've been part of that has the technical capability to distribute sermons as podcasts had that capability because I set it up. Uh, you know, <laughs> that, that that's, that's the kind of, you know, aging small church that I tend to attend. Um, and like I said, you know, most of the time, People use that when they've got a sick kid and they can't come to church, when, you know, they are on the road and they want to hear the sermon, things like that. There were very few people who listened to it, you know, as a replacement for it. And certainly I never talked to anyone who stopped going to the churches that I preached at uh, so that they could just listen to me on podcasts. That's not why they were there mainly, frankly. Um, now, I will say that when I was at a theology beer camp about a year ago, and this was two years after I had, you know, been fired from the pulpit. So I hadn't been an active week-to-week -week preacher for a solid two years, like I said. 
Uh, I did run into someone who, because of the podcast, had discovered my sermons online and had listened to them to kind of see how the Christian humanist who talks about platonic dialogues on the podcast would talk about biblical texts in a sermon. So, you know, that was very gratifying, you know, for him to make reference to particular sermons that I preached. But again, this guy was uh, just eyeballing him. And if he's listening right now, I apologize if I'm missing here. I would say minimum late 40s, early 50s. Uh, so this is not a millennial who is skipping out of church to listen to podcast sermons. This is a podcast listener who is interested in the fact that one of the podcast hosts also delivers sermons and therefore, you know, wants to kind of hear it, right? Um, so anyway, I mean, I you know, David, you want to follow up on any of that? Because I kind of went stream of consciousness no, there I, for I a little bit. No, I think that's really, really interesting because you're... Any any attempt to imagine myself into that position is purely that, and and you've you've lived it. Um, if you were and and you said that any any capability to broadcast or or to to, to uh, disseminate recorded sermons was something that you gave. Um, if uh, and maybe you did this. Um, if podcasting, if, if you knew that you were getting a lot of podcast play, potentially from people who weren't in your congregation, do you think that would make a difference to what you, as the preacher, would uh, would do in your sermons? And do you think it might detract from your ability to, to preach as, uh, to preach to the people who were before you? That is a fascinating hypothetical. Um, like I said, I mean, I never got a sense that we were getting a whole lot of downloads. Uh, so, you know, this wasn't part of my actual lived experience. I, my hunch is, and this can only be speculation, kind of like you were just saying, David, my hunch is that because I tend to become engrossed in the faces in front of me when I'm delivering a sermon, that I wouldn't deliver my sermons any differently if I knew that you know, I had 70 people in the seats and then 700 downloading the sermons. Uh, just knowing how much a live audience in front of me draws my utter focus. Uh, but since that hasn't been part of my uh, actual experience, that, that's a guess. Okay. I, that, that's something that I would be interested in. I don't know, maybe, maybe this is something somebody knows about, but um, the the idea of being heard by more people than are in the room can, I mean, I, I, I can't, I can't imagine how that couldn't, but change, uh, the, the act of speaking. If, if that's really kind of before your mind as you're, as you're doing it. Um, right, right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I figure like an Andy Stanley or a right. Rick Warren, I have, I have to think that affects the way that they, write their sermons, probably how they deliver them, too. Well, there is a move towards the Gospels in this article. And, Michael, what would Jesus podcast? <laughs> uh, Nothing. <laughs> did this says. appeal to the ministry of Jesus to critique podcasts strike you as not especially strong? That was That was my impression. Maybe it's just me. 
Uh, yeah, it's not not especially strong, especially since uh, Shushart is not in the room making this argument to me. He says, uh, oh, let me... Jesus was so against, so against any form of mediation that he never did anything unless he was there live in person embodied to see to it personally, which I think may mean... Uh, May mean he believes in the real presence in the Eucharist. <laughs> he never, he never once wrote anything down. He never asked once asked any of his disciples to be the group secretary or disciple scribe. And on several occasions, he actually commanded the recipients of his miracles to tell no one what the Lord has done for you. The actual scribes, the legalizers and conceptualizers, he could never get along with, and he got under their skin so much they conspired to kill him. Yeah, you know how we know all this? Because some of his disciples wrote it down. <laughs> this is It's just a bizarre argument. I mean, I get that this guy is uncomfortable with technology. I share that discomfort in a lot of ways, but you have to be not even a neo-Luddite. You you have to be an old school Socratic Luddite to uh, to follow this argument. I think. I mean, just no sort of widespread communication would be possible. You couldn't print bulletins. Somebody might take the bulletin home and look at the announcements, and the pastor wouldn't be there to read it to them. It, it's just a bizarre argument. It is almost a parody of media ecology. And also, that reading of the Messianic secret in the Gospel of Mark is just jaw dropping. <laughs> weird exegesis yeah yeah well the whole thing is weird exegesis i wonder like when he asked that when he made that point though like jesus he's 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 against mediation um i immediately thought okay can i think it can i think of any counter examples um and i thought of how he spoke to john the baptist in prison through a messenger um, I thought about, and this is, this is not just, uh, uh, this is, this is not, not just the gospels, Michael, but, um, I'm not a biblical studies guy, but I think that there are at least were rumored to be some kind of circulating collections of the sayings of Jesus that might, inc- that would include content that in the gospels is the sermon on the Mount and other, um, discourses of Christ that were um, uh, at least my understanding was circulating amongst um, the early Christians um, as uh, as presentations of, of, of the notes that the people who heard it took um, yes the legendary yeah, Hume yeah, source yeah. so that later became embodied and tormented Captain Picard <laughs> I was gonna. I was gonna say it got embodied in Johnny Dench. <laughs> no, John Cleese. John Cleese. Uh, Judy Dench is M. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I haven't actually seen any of those that's, movies. That's fair. Uh, anyway, it, it didn't. That it just. It just seemed like a really, really strange argument to me. And then to say, you know, who's like the scribes, podcasters. Yeah, well, and to be fair, I mean, your your hackles went up as mine did because it is hard not to read that as some sort of <laughs> fact. But I don't think what we're doing is really what he's claiming, right? I mean, he's or what he's complaining about. We're not podcasting no. a sermon. Nobody, nobody uses this show as a substitute for going to church. And if you do, you should feel bad about yourself. 
because uh, we tell fart jokes way more than we preach. <laughs> and I just um, so so I, I do think I, I have to take a step back and re- and think about what he what he, what specifically he's talking about. I still disagree with him, but I don't think he's saying let's have no podcast. Although maybe he is because Jesus didn't write anything down. Is that? I wonder if he does. I mean, is that his argument though? Isn't you know I I, I don't know a whole half of, heck of a lot about you know first century stuff, but didn't rabbis kind of expect their their students to do a lot of kind of hardcore memorization? Don't we have things like um, uh, the, the, the Talmud and the Mishnah, which largely consist of things that later disciples wrote down about what their rabbis said? And then that whole New Testament yeah, well, thing. Um, have... <laughs> But yeah, I mean, David, I mean, just real quick, I mean, that is all part of that larger exegetical tradition that Pierre Hadot writes so nicely about. Uh, This is something that, you know, is structurally similar across philosophical schools and rabbinic traditions and Christian traditions. I mean, the idea that you have to have the teacher present uh, basically becomes a great geographic limit on a tradition unless you can also develop some kind of exegetical tradition to go along with it. Right. Have either of you heard the, uh, I I can't remember, I can't cite my source on this, so I'm not going to, I'm not going to put, put weight on it. Um, But have either of you heard um, a reading of the book of Hebrews that it is, that it started out as a sermon that this is a, this is mainly a, a sermon or a discourse that has then been turned into an epistle. Oh, I certainly, yeah. About okay. Clement. So I didn't. Okay, so I didn't make that up, and I didn't. Okay, okay. That's... No, that that that's a commonplace in New oh, okay, Testament scholarship. Deal. Um, because if that's the case, then we've actually got a sermon podcast in the New Testament. <laughs> right. So. Yeah. Well, uh, we are folks who value the local body with its preaching ministry and we also have a podcast so as we head towards the door um can we imagine a way to podcast sermons without undercutting the genuine goods that shushart values let me start with you michael yes um and i think he actually gives it which is which is to say show the whole service stream it online at once don't let you download it i think that's probably a good in between for for shut-ins at home uh and people who are concerned about watering down the message the other thing i think you could do that would go along with it is to stop thinking about the sermon as the most important thing because the sermon out of everything in the service is the thing that's most easily detached but if you see confession or the eucharist or these other things that can really only be done in a group only be done in that place as as more important than the sermon i i think the sermon problem may solve itself and you know in the interest of time i'll just second what michael just said Uh, If we think of the life of the faithful community uh, as involving a sermon rather than a gathering to hear a sermon, we are on our way to establishing and maintaining a community that makes podcasted sermons intelligible, but not intelligible as a substitute. Mm. 
I would say, and this is just a maybe maybe tech, technique. Uh, if if you are a pastor who is uh, preaching and those sermons are being recorded for podcast, um, overtly emphasize the importance of being part of a local body. Um, speak to the people who are in the congregation. Name them. Uh, tell in jokes. Um, make it explicit that you're speaking to the people who are in front of you and not only to um, a host of anonymous, uh, faceless, uh, identityless people who might be hearing it one day. Um, emphasize the, the ways in which um, your, your preaching is part of pastoral ministry so that those who might be tempted to view it as a substitute yearn for the, yearn for that yearn for that relationship that they don't have um yearn for that connectedness that they aren't getting through a podcast um uh, to to the degree that we make it easy for people to see church as a as entertainment and as commodity it can be replaced by more readily dispensed and more entertaining commodities um to the degree that uh, it is the body of Christ lived among real people. Um, it becomes a thing that you can't replace with iTunes. So, what are we doing next week? Well, our next episode will come out on the anniversary of uh, Mahatma Gandhi's assassination. We're also just after Martin Luther King Day, so I thought we'd do an episode on nonviolence. Cool. Well, dear, dear listeners, if you have any uh, comments or questions or whatever kind of feedback on this show about sermons, you can send them to our email at thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. You can post them on Facebook. Um, you can uh, also post them in the comments to the show notes on our blog um, when, he, we, when we do that. If you want to look for more podcasts uh, from the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org is the place to find those. Uh, you can also find us on iTunes. Uh, in the meanwhile, I'm David Grubbs on behalf of Michael Farmer and Nathan Gilmore, wishing you all grand weeks. The Christian Humanist Podcast is a show on the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our editor is Ellen Peterson. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. And I leave you with the words of Martin Luther, Luther, to let your sin be strong and let your faith be stronger.